Well, good evening. Thank you, Patrick, very much for that. And uh, let me just say, it's a great privilege to be here. I've never been in New Mexico before. Uh, I've been in about 40 of the different states, but never in New Mexico, never been to the unevangelized fields until now. So it's really good to be here, and it's good to be at uh, Hoffman Town and know that you have such a connection and uh, compassion for the world. And uh, what I've been hearing, like Myanmar, that we heard from Emory just now, and the work that's going on there, a country that has been largely closed for so many, many years. And uh, it's, it's uh, wonderful to know that you're involved in places such as that. As was said when I was introduced when, earlier, uh, I am from Great Britain originally, so I'm the only one here who doesn't have an accent. Uh, the rest of you have kind of distorted it somewhere along the line. But uh, I think I know nobody here except Bill um, Passons, who I met in Cincinnati a while ago, but uh, I otherwise am a complete stranger to you, so thank you for inviting me to share in this. The theme of this conference uh, is grace through us into the world. At least that was what I was sent. And uh, I understand that the word grace may seem a bit abstract sometimes. What does it mean? So I want to personalize it and just make a slight revision to Christ through us into the world. Because that actually is the theme of the book of Acts, isn't it? And Paul wrote in Romans 15, 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. I'm not going to talk to you about what I have done for Christ, because that is totally irrelevant, he's saying. It's what Christ has done through me. Christ threw us into the world. At the end of his first missionary journey, Paul came to uh, Antioch. In Acts 14, verse 27, it says, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, how he had opened the door of faith to Gentiles. Their report was not on what they had been doing for God. It was on what God had been doing through them. In Acts 15, verse 5, when they had the council in Jerusalem, when they came to Jerusalem, this is Paul and Barnabas, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Same message. Later, speaking to the Jerusalem church, Acts 15, 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Acts 21, 19, the end of his third missionary journey, Paul came back also to Jerusalem. And Paul greeted them, reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That's the recurring theme. God through him, God through him, God through him, God through him. I want to know nothing else except what Christ accomplishes through me. And of course, today, right now, in 2018, it's God through you and through me. We're the only means he's chosen to do his work through in our world, and uh, that's why we have this theme. And I thought in the sessions tonight and tomorrow morning, when it's my privilege to speak, that we talk about that, and I'm gonna base it on Matthew chapter nine and verse 36, 37, and 38. 
Let me read you uh, what it says there. It says, when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they were hungry, they were harassed, they were helpless, they were confused. Then Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So here's what to do. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. There's some rich, important things in those few words of Jesus. Perhaps the part that surprises us, all that we find hardest to really believe, is when Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. Even in Jesus' time, they might have found that hard to believe. When Jesus ascended, he left behind only 120 people waiting for the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured out. There may have been a few other believers, disciples up in the Galilee region, but 120 people waiting for Pentecost is not a large number after three years of the kind of ministry Jesus had with all its powerful demonstrations of the presence and working of God. I mean, he preached once to 5,000 men. Now, if that doesn't include women, that's 10,000 with the women, and children, that's probably 20,000, whatever it was, massive crowd of people, miraculously fed them with five loaves and two fishes. How many of them became his disciples? Very few, if any from that crowd, because Jesus said later, it's because you ate of your, f uh, uh, they followed him, you see, because you ate some free food, that's why you followed me now, around the Lake of Galilee, not because you understood anything that I was trying to say. I mean, Jesus healed people all over the place. How many of them became his disciples? Not many of them. So when Jesus said to his disciples here, the harvest is plentiful, they probably thought to themselves, well, where in the world is it? And it may be we're tempted to feel that way. We look around our world. You around your country. I now live in Canada. Me around Canada or around Britain or around the whole Western world that has been the hub of the Christian gospel uh, since about the 17th century. And we say to ourselves... Is this actually true that the harvest is plentiful? Well, let me show you from what Jesus said here how we know that and how we discover that. Verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I want to give you four key words, two tonight and two tomorrow from these verses. No, three tonight, and well, maybe we'll see. Maybe only one tonight, we'll see, if I remember what the others are. And the first key word I want to give you is the word vision. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Vision is looking around with open eyes and a discerning heart to see what is actually going on. It's very easy to walk around as believing Christians with our eyes shut. Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus 
met the Samaritan woman, you remember that story, and uh, they were going from Judea up to Galilee, went to Samaria. Uh, Jesus was tired. He sat down by the well in Samaria while his disciples went into the city to buy food. While he was there, a woman came to draw water on her own in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, which is not normal for somebody to do that. You normally come in the cool of the day with all the other women of the community. She came in the heat of the day, and Jesus engaged her in conversation and said to an effect, you know, you're a very thirsty woman, aren't you? But I want to tell you something. If you drink this water, you'll be thirsty tomorrow. You'll be back tomorrow at the same time with the same bucket to get this more water. And you'll be back the next day and the next day and the next day. This water, necessary though it is, will never actually satisfy your real thirst. But if you took what I am offering, you'll never thirst again. She didn't know what he was talking about. And she said, well, how can you offer me water like this? You don't even have a bucket to collect the water with. And Jesus pointed, no, no, I'm talking about something much deeper than this. He said, go and call your husband, which must have been very embarrassing for her, because he said, well, actually, I don't have one. He said, no, you're right. You've had five. You're now living with somebody who's not your husband, whether he's your first or tenth, we don't know. But he said to her, I'll tell you why you're doing this. Because you're thirsty. And thirsty people will drink dirty water. And you are thinking, if I can find in love, maybe, in relationship, maybe, in sex, maybe, if I can find what I'm really looking for, then I'll be satisfied. But you discover you come back to the well again and again and again and again and again. And this man probably won't satisfy you any more than any other men have done so. But I've got something for you which will meet the deepest needs of your heart. Now, you remember that conversation, don't you? And uh, she at first was very defensive, and then she suddenly got it. The penny dropped, said, uh, I know the Messiah's coming. When he comes, he'll tell us all this. In other words, don't you try to do it in the meantime. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And she got it. This is who he was. Then the disciples came back from their business of having gone to get some food. And it says when they came back that they were surprised to find him talking to a woman. There are probably two or three reasons why they were surprised. Probably surprised because here he is alone with a woman talking to her. You're not supposed to do that. Billy Graham never did that. He had a rule about it, remember? Don't ever spend time with a woman other than your wife on your own. It's a good rule. I have it too. Jesus didn't have it. He spent time with this woman. And they probably were surprised by that. They were surprised also because she was a Samaritan. And it, as it says in John chapter 4, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And that goes back 700 years when the Syrians took the northern kingdom of Israel off into exile, left a few people behind to till the ground, look after it, left a few Assyrians to oversee them. The, over, the, the Syrians and the Israelis, Israelites, should I say, intermarried, produced children. They were neither Jewish nor they Syrian. They, they were called Samaritans because Samaria was the capital of that northern kingdom. And uh, ever since, for 700 years, the Samaritans have been despised by the Jewish people and despised by the Assyrians and they lived in isolation. And here he is talking to a woman that we normally have nothing to do with. And probably another reason would be that she was a woman with a reputation. And Jesus is sitting here talking to her. 
The disciples would have seen all these things as problems, all these things as prohibitions, all these things as reasons not to spend time with a woman like this. And Jesus said to them in John 4, 35, he rebuked them, in fact. I tell you, he said to them, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. He says, you disciples, you're surprised. You don't think it's good. But I tell you, open your eyes and look. You see, they had gone into Samaria with their heads down. They probably passed this woman on the road. They probably said, good morning because they'd be polite. When she was out of earshot, they probably said to each other, I wonder why she's on her own going to get water in the middle of the day. And one of the disciples probably said, you know, maybe she's an outcast. That would have been correct. Wonder why she's an outcast. And they probably had a bit of gossip amongst them about why she possibly was where she was in the middle of the day going to get some water. But they never saw her. They never saw her. And Jesus rebuked them and said, he said later, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. I sent you. I, get, I stayed back at the well because I sent you to give you the privilege of doing the work somebody else has worked for. We don't know who else had done the work, what had gone on this woman's life. And you totally missed her on the way. Open your eyes and look. And what I am discovering and what I believe not only was true here and elsewhere, is that sometimes the greatest work God is doing is where we actually least expect it and where we do not look and where we close our eyes. Do you know the fastest growing church in the world today? Anybody know where it is? It's Iran. The fastest growing church in the world Estimated to be growing at 5.2% every year at the moment. And there are hundreds of thousands of Christians from Muslim backgrounds now meeting in communities across Iran. I have had the privilege of ministering to some of these. We broadcast in Farsi into Iran, which is their language and into Afghanistan as well. And uh, every year during the Iranian New Year, they have, uh, they, the Iranians can leave Iran and go into either Turkey or Armenia without a visa for the duration of the New Year celebrations, which are about 10 days. And uh, every New Year they organize a Christian conference for Christians to come out and be able to meet together and sing together, which they can't do back at home because people will hear them and neighbors will hear them and be taught the word of God. And I had the privilege of speaking at one of those uh, New Year's, four years ago this was, in Armenia. And uh, I tell you, it just about uh, uh, wore me out forever because they would meet at eight in the morning having eaten and they would sing for two hours because they weren't able to sing back at home, just sing and worship. And then from 10 o'clock till 12 o'clock, I had to speak. We went to the book of Romans. Then we stopped from 12 to 2, and then from 2 to 4, I spoke again. Then we stopped from, two to, from 4 to 6, had some more food, and then I spoke from 6 to 8, and they wanted the, no singing. This was just two full hours. And at the end of the 8 o'clock session, they would sing for another hour. 
and then supposedly go to bed, but they're so excited to be together, some were up till way past midnight, and so they were half asleep the next morning. And this went on all week, and, and I was the only speaker that they had, and I had a translator who, who is a, a great guy, but he got wearier and wearier, and I got wearier and wearier, and eventually said to me, do you mind if I sit down when I translate? I said, sure, I'm going to stay standing. And I did so about two more sessions, and I said, I'm going to sit down as well. And I said, I think tomorrow I'm going to lie down. <laughs> uh, but the great thing is, you know, there was an appetite, a hunger for the Word of God, we don't get people to, together like that uh, in our Western communities. We don't have that kind of appetite. We tip our hats to it and we say, yeah, 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 we, we love the Word of God. But actually, the vast majority of the people of this church are not here tonight. And they're not interested in being here tonight. Because that is simply the way it is with believers in our comfortable Western world. We obey lip service, of course. We tip our hat to it and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, go on. We love missions. But we don't, actually. We don't actually love the world and love the people. And love the word of God in the sense that we dig into it this way. And uh, while I was there, I was telling somebody dinner last night. Several of them wanted to be baptized. And they wanted to keep it very quiet, secret, they didn't know who might be somewhere in this conference who might report something back because to be baptized is to change your religion formally and legally, which is against the law, in fact. And so they found a place, asked me if I'd baptize them. We went to a place, and um, after we baptized a number of them, there was young men, young women, and I was with the young men. We were changing afterwards, and one of them said to me, you know, this has been my dream to be baptized. Another one said, yeah, it's been mine as well. And they all agreed it was a bad dream to have been baptized. The significance of that is when they came out of the water, they came out criminals in the eyes of the law. This has been my dream. That's going on in Iran. The Middle East, which is in turmoil, is seeing a remarkable work of God, particularly in Egypt. They say there are more people have come to Christ in Egypt than the last seven years since 2011 when the Arab Spring, which was a catalyst for what has become an appetite for God, more people have come to Christ in the last seven years than the previous 1,000 years. Those who live there say that. And by the way, about Iran, they say more have come to Christ in the last uh, 20 years, I think it is, than in the previous 1,500 years. It's a church in Cairo called Casa El Dabara, a church I know and I've been to on a number of occasions. It's the largest evangelical church in the Middle East. They have um, outreaches all across North Africa and into the Middle East. They're right in the, located near the city center. And they get about 7,000 now over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And uh, that, those kind of numbers were totally unheard of a, a little while ago. And uh, th they used to have two baptismal services a year in that church. It's a strong thing to be baptized in a Muslim context. And uh, uh, in 2011, when the Arab Spring began, there were riots. It began in Tunisia, but there were riots down in Tahir Square in Cairo soon afterwards. And uh, people were getting 
beaten up in the course of those demonstrations and riots. And the pastor of this church is really a surgeon. And so they opened the church as a medical center, a kind of first aid center. And uh, word spread around. It was on the national news that this church was being used as a first aid center. And it created some interest. And people came to see what was going on. And as a result, people started to, were led to Christ. And uh, in 2012, instead of two baptismal services a year, they had four that year. Doubled it. The following year, they had six baptismal services. And the next year or two, they're having a baptismal baptismal service every month, 12 a year. And I was last in Casa Eldabar Church about 18 months ago. And they were having a baptismal service every Sunday. Four o'clock Sunday afternoon is baptismal service. Every week. This is in Cairo. People coming to Christ and being willing to publicly, publicly affirm their faith in Christ, often at expense often at risk of life, and they've had cases of people who've been killed who had taken their stand for Christ. When I last saw Samuel Morris, the pastor, which was in the last year or so, I, I said to him, how are the baptismal service is going? He said, well, you won't believe this. If we wanted to, we could have them every day. He said, we have never seen something like this in the Middle East. And his assessment is this. There's a wave of atheism flowing through the Middle East right now, but it's an Allah atheism. It's turning away from Islam. They are sick to death of the extremism which is so disruptive and so destructive that many are saying, I want nothing to do with Islam. And they're turning away from Islam, turning initially into secularism, but the Arab people are a spiritual people, so not many are satisfied with the secularism when they find it, and so people are going on over and looking for real spiritual life and appetite and are coming to Christ. That's going on right now in the Middle East. And when you hear the Middle East and when you hear news reports from Egypt and there are other stories as well. I've been in Iraq and uh, spent time at a pastor's conference there and uh, people who are seeing growth, growth, growth. That's the story they were telling. The refugee crisis in the Middle East has opened many to the gospel in a way it never had for us. It's a totally another story. How that refugees are some of the most fruitful areas of ministry at the moment. You know, back in 1949, China became occupied by uh, communism, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, in the Civil War in China, won the victory, and uh, communism became the official status of China. Before that, China had been one of the most targeted areas of Christian missions from the West, from America, from Europe, and Australia, New Zealand, and so on. There are many missions who've gone to China. And after the revolution, they were driven out. By 1952, every missionary had left China. And in our Western arrogance, if I may put it that way, we in the West began to say, oh, our forebears back in 60 years or so ago, began to say, what is going to happen to the church in China now the missionaries have gone? And when China began to open up again, which was not until the 70s, Richard Nixon was a contributing factor to the opening up of China when he made his visit there. 
and uh, there was a loosening, and you could go in and have, have more access. And now we have uh, very easy access, of course, into China. And they estimate in 1949, there are approximately one million Christians in China. The Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, you may be familiar with that organization, uh, a bit like the Barna organization, but produces statistics and surveys from around the world. They estimate there are today 67 million Christians in China, and they're renowned for their conservatism. They don't want to exaggerate or give any false impressions. There are those who work in China who say the figure is nearer 100 million, some say 120 million. I was with somebody two weeks ago, and I quoted uh, this figure of 67 million, this man worked in China. I said, I hear, according to the Pew Forum, there's 67 million. So yeah, that is, I, I, it, it's at least double that, is what those of us who live there. Well, say it's 67 million. Where else in the world has the church grown 67 times? But in, the church where, in a country where the church was oppressed, the missionaries were driven out. Back in 1936, I think it was, it was a conference, a big conference held in England, big missionary convention, several thousand people there. And there was one day when they talked about the Japanese invasion of northeast China and the oppression of China. This is back in the 30s. Japan was the aggressor. Of course, we all got involved when they attacked Pearl Harbor in 1942, but prior to that, in the 1930s, they'd occupied much of China and had threatened other parts of Asia. And uh, uh, they were talking about this at this missionary conference. There was a young Chinese man there whose name many of you will know. His name was Watchman Nee. And the chairman said, I'm going to ask our brother, Watchman Nee, who was just there as a guest, not as a speaker, he wasn't known to anybody then, would he come and just pray for China? And he came up and he prayed a prayer which was repeated in full in the report of that conference and of the huge impact it had on people. When he started to pray, he said, God, we do not pray for China. And we do not pray for Japan. We pray for the interests of Jesus Christ in China and the interests of Jesus Christ in Japan. And whatever those are and whatever it involves, it is that that we pray that will be implemented. Watchman himself became a martyr after the communist revolution. But what were the interests of Jesus Christ in Japan? The safety of the Christians, the safety of Watchman No. It's through this disastrous, which God didn't orchestrate this, the, the, this disastrous oppression and persecution. That's the work of the devil. But in it, God was working at something very beautiful. Open your eyes, said Jesus to the disciples, and look where you least expect. You go to India. We had that beautiful little testimony from India on, on the screen. And... Uh, you know, it's, we have to be careful. We don't throw out some statistics that, that, that give a distorted view. But there are some amazing things going on in India. I go to India quite frequently, and there's some amazing things going on there that uh, 
would never have been believed by any believers there 20 or 30 years ago. I was last year in a church in Chennai, which used to be called Madras. And it, be, it was began by a man who was a Hindu convert. He joined a church. He thought, I want to start a church that is just to reach Hindus. And so it began in his house. There were eight people met the first Sunday. They grew to 12 by 50% in the next week, <laughs> 12 of them. I was invited to go and speak at this church in Chennai, and they said to me, it's a church of 42,000 people. Now, I've heard those kind of numbers banded around before, and I'm extremely cynical of them, because they're not counting heads, they're not even counting arms, they're counting fingers when they give numbers like that. They might even be counting hairs, I have no idea. They, they, these fun, you, know, you go to Korea, they tell you, this church has 800,000 people, only seats 3,000 people and they have five services, and there's 800,000. So there's all kinds of nonsense that's talked about in this kind of way. But, you know, we counted the services we were from 6 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock at night, every two hours, 6, 8, 10, 12, 2, 4, 6. And at the end of the day, I thought, you know, that's 42,000 people. <laughs> Incredible. Mostly Hindu converts, not all, because when there's a good thing happening, all kinds of people come and join. Biggest crowd I ever spoke to in my life was 120,000 people in Marriman, in Kerala, in the southeast of, of um, uh, India, where they had the big floods last month. And they, they wrote to me and said, we have this, this eight-day conference called the Marriman Convention. Starts on a Sunday, finishes the next Sunday. Would you come for three or four days? We'd like you to come towards the end of the week because we start small. We start on the first Sunday usually with only about 25,000 people. That's what the letter said. But if you can come Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, by Thursday, we've probably got 60 or 70,000. By Saturday, we've got 100,000. And on Sunday, that 100,000, they can get inside this one area that they had created, and they create every year. It takes three months to create it. And uh, outside was probably about 20,000 people sitting on the banks. Phenomena. They, they, they uh, translated a couple of my books and they put them into Malayalam, which is the language of Kerala. And they did 5,000 copies and they said, the shelf life of this book is one week. We will sell them all this week. <laughs> Remarkable. That's in India right now. But you know, uh, yeah, that some of the places where we least expect are actually the places where God is at work. We divide people up, we divide the world up, we define categories of people, and we think these are the folks who are more receptive to the gospel, and these, we don't think there's much chance. We may not say it, but we think it, and we feel it. We try to evangelize the people who are most like Christians, except they're not quite Christians yet. You know what the scripture says? It's where sin abounds, or grace abounds all the more. If it's grace through you to the world, Christ through us to the world, grace functions best where sin abounds. Let's love the sinner. Let's love the places where sin abounds as the field where the Spirit of God brings life. 
Because we're running a bit behind schedule, I'm going to just uh, maybe cut what I'm going to say down a bit now. Uh, but I want to go back to this whole theme, you know, this grace through us is actually not an abstract thing called grace, it's Christ through us to the world. And God is not taking a vacation, he's busy, he's active, and as he has been so in history, he is today, globally, there are more believers now than they've ever been in history. And I think we need to keep that in mind as well, that the church in Africa, Sub-Sahara Africa at least, the church in um, Latin America, in much of Asia. Not only is the church itself uh, growing, but it's interesting how the diaspora of these nations, like the, the Chinese who live outside of China, there are many who are coming to Christ. We have some of the biggest churches in Toronto are Chinese churches. There are Iranian churches all over the world now where Iranian folks are coming to Christ in different circumstances. There are folks from the Middle East, from Islamic backgrounds who are getting visions of Christ quite remarkably. A man came to me Sunday morning when I was preaching in the People's Church in Toronto one day. I didn't know what's all. He came to me and said, I've been told to come and see you. I said, well, it's nice to meet you. What's your name? He told me his name. And uh, I said, who told you to come and see me? He said, I don't know. But I had a dream. And in this dream, he said, and it happened, I think it was three times, I saw what turned out to be the people's church. He'd seen it. And he went by on a bus and recognized it, he told me. And I was told to come and find the leader of that church, and I was the lead pastor, and that you would lead me to Christ. You'd lead me to Jesus, is the language he used. I said, what does that mean? He said, I have no idea what that means. So you've come here this morning because you were told in a dream to come to this church and that the leader would lead you to Jesus, yes. That's the only reason I'm here. So I don't know what it means. I don't know how you can lead me to Jesus or whatever that is, but that's why I'm here. I said, sit down. And, uh, you know, this is, this, is going on, this is going on in Toronto, that was. But folks from this kind of, he was from Iraq, uh, from that kind of background. But the great danger in what I've just said to you now about the Middle East and other, China and so on, India, is that we kind of look out there and we say, that's fantastic, praise God, you know, for what he's doing across the world. But the theme of this conference is uh, Christ through us into the world, which is not just over there somewhere, over the hills and far away, but it's a Jerusalem as well, and a Judea as well, and a Samaria as well. And... Uh, let me just talk a bit about the fact that God has an agenda for you and for me because we're never going to make disciples across the world if we're not making them in our own circle either. That's why, and I've said this several times, um, that the, the missionaries, when God sends missionaries from your church, they'll be the people you can least afford to lose because their presence, their activity in the local community is fruitful. And when they get to the 
foreign place, say, well, can you be fruitful? But nobody on a plane journey ever becomes spiritual. <laughs> you go onto the plane, you know, unfruitful, and you get off, and suddenly you're fruitful. Uh, and so it's what God is doing here that determines what God is doing there and what God will do there. And again, God works where we least expect. You know, I, I pastored the church in Toronto, and uh, we went to all the thinking about a strategic plan for evangelism. Have you done that here? I'm sure you have. We all do that. And I know the value of that, but I also know the delusion of that. Because we think if we can come up with the right plan that can reach people and give a, an open door for people to come in and, and hear the gospel, that we better lead people to Christ. And thank God that we think that way. But my experience in the years I spent in Toronto was that the real converts, and by that I mean the people who have become leaders in the church, didn't come through the open door, in most cases, that we'd open for them and said, come on, come in, and, and, and we want to, whatever program we've got whereby we can explain the gospel. The real converts came into the window and nobody was looking, <laughs> it seems to me. I can give you one or two examples. There was a, a Mormon bishop and his wife and uh, they were going to their church uh, on a Sunday morning, and he was not preaching. What they call a bishop is really a pastor, a kind of lay pastor, really. And he, he was not preaching that Sunday morning, and he was a bit late. It was the first snow of the season. And uh, it's, do you know what snow is, by the way? It's a white stuff that <laughs> falls out of the sky. And I've never seen pictures of it, but... <laughs> um, and so the traffic was all bogged down and so on uh, because of the snow. And then he got onto the street where the people's church is and uh, the traffic was, was jammed because he was there at the time when one of our services was about to start. And so people were coming in and they send us two policemen every week, two cops to direct traffic and they send us a bill every month to pay for them. Uh, but he thought, man, I'm gonna be late. What's all this about, you know? and uh, realized it was about people coming to this church. And his son in the back seat said, why don't we go to this church instead, Dad? And his story is, I said to my son, don't be such a fool, or don't be so foolish. That's more like, don't be so foolish. So as we got to the main entrance into the people's church, the car in front pulled into the parking lot, and I followed it in. And my wife said to me, what are you doing? He said, I don't know. Let's just go here and do something different. I'm fed up. And so they found what he said was the last parking space. Came in, set up in the balcony. End of the service, I stand at the front and talk to folks. And uh, there was uh, several people. And this couple were there in the line. When I got to them, I'd never met them before, of course. He pointed right at my face and said, who told you we were coming here today? <laughs> I said, I don't think I know you. He said, somebody told you we were coming. I said, what do you mean? He said, you described me this morning exactly. And I said, oh, I know who told me, but I didn't know it was you. <laughs> I said, I'm trusting it was the Holy Spirit who told me about you without my knowing it. 
And I said, who are you? He gave me his name. He said, I'm a Mormon bishop. I said, a Mormon bishop? That's interesting. Why aren't you at your place this morning? He said, because of the snow and the traffic, and I was fed up. So I came here. But that morning, he and his wife came to Christ. Within about six weeks, his two kids, who were 12 and 14, were saved in our youth ministry. We baptized the whole family together. Uh, you know, Mormons are baptized for every Tom, Dick, and Harry that they want to see uh, be celestially married forever or something. I don't know what they do. But they go back to ancestors and so on. That's why they, they're the best source of ancestry because they're baptizing on behalf of them. So I said to him, how many times have you, have you been baptized now? And he said, this is the first time I've been baptized in Christ. When he went back to his church the next week, he told them what had happened to him the previous Sunday. And some were curious, some were really upset with him and angry with him, but he, we had a Sunday evening as well as Sunday morning service. And he said, I want some of you to come with me to the evening service tonight. I want you to hear what they have to say. And so he brought some of his congregation to the evening service. And then he brought others back, and then he'd come to me, and, and he'd introduce me and say, this, this person, one of my congregation, you know, and they've just come to Christ. And it caused a huge stir in the Mormon church in Toronto. This is not their main church, one of their churches out in, in a suburb, and the Mormon church in Toronto closed it down because of the damage this man was doing, and they sold the building and sold the land, and it's now been built, uh, something else been built on it. But, you know, we had no strategy for reaching Mormon bishops or strategy for reaching congregations through Mormon bishops. We, didn't, we never thought about that. Oh, how are we going to reach Mormon bishops? No. It was, it was God who did it. We, we, we'd opened the door to all kinds of good ways we thought be be accessible. I got a phone call one day from a young man, student at the University in Toronto. He was from Iran. Called me and said, can I come and see you? And I said, sure. So he came to see me on a Thursday afternoon. He said, I don't know what the meaning of life is. I know there has to be meaning. I just don't know what it is. He said, um, I know it's not in Islam. And I know it's not in New Age philosophies. I've looked in all of that. I know it's not in self-help books. I've read some of them. It's like putting yourself up with your bootlaces when you do that. So I decided I'd find out whether Christianity had anything to offer. So I came here, it was the nearest church to where he lived. I came here, he also sat up on the balcony. And he said, when I left, this was the previous Sunday, when I left last Sunday, I hadn't understood a word of anything I'd heard. If somebody said to me, put a sentence together of something you heard last Sunday, I couldn't do it. But he said, although I didn't understand anything I heard, I knew it was true. But I recognized right away, this is the Holy Spirit. He bears witness to truth, even when you don't understand the truth. So he said, what is it that's true? I invited him to join a Bible study group I had uh, with young men who are either new Christians or searching, and we used to meet on a Monday night uh, about 6 o'clock for pizza. We stayed about 10 o'clock at night. We were supposed to be going to Matthew's gospel. That's what I want to do with them. But we talked about everything under the sun. 
And uh, in a few weeks, he came to Christ. He immediately became a disciple of others down at the university. Uh, he opened his room to people to come and study the Bible. He said, I don't know anything about it, but let's study it together and find out together what it's about. And he had some of his friends down at the university. And he's become an absolutely wonderful young man. And the, the, the uh, uh, sequence to that story is that he's actually now my son-in-law. <laughs> uh, I, I took him to my, I took these young men to my home one night, which was a mistake. That was a mistake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they were all in the, in the church, but there was a lot of people around. They hadn't met, they knew names. And, and uh, that night, our eldest daughter, Hannah, when they left, said, I think I found the husband for Laura, which is her sister tonight. <laughs> oh, really? They were about 20 and 18 or something like that. And she said, Fazem, that's his name. Uh, he'd be ideal for Laura. Well, actually, he married Hannah <laughs> instead. And they're now missionaries in South Africa. They've been there for two years now, working with a mission called Hands at Work, amongst some of the poorest of the poor. He's paid a huge price for his stand as a gospel, uh, for, for Christ, and uh, particularly from his family and so on. But we had no strategy for reaching disillusioned Muslim Iranians. We had no strategy for that. I didn't preach a sermon that day designed to reach people like that. I, pre I could have got up there and taught gobbledygook because that's all it seemed like to him. But the Holy Spirit bore witness, this is true, this is true, this is true. And he came to Christ. You know, when Michael Jackson died, there was a film uh, released uh, called This Is It. Did anybody see that film? Any Michael Jackson fan? Oh, yeah, you did. Good for you. Yeah, several of you did. It, it, it was really re his rehearsals for a series of concerts he was going to do, and so they put these rehearsals into this film, I believe anyway, and uh, showed it. Well, there was a, a girl who was a great Michael Jackson fan who on a Saturday night went to see This Is It. Sunday morning, next day, she was driving down the street past the People's Church, and we had a huge sign outside that said, is this it? <laughs> Question mark. And we had a few things underneath and small pictures, and is this what life's about? And she was driving down, so is this it? She said, oh, that must be about Michael Jackson. So she came in, parked her car, came into the building, uh, an usher took her to a, to a, a, a row, and, and she went right to the middle of this row, and there's about six, seven, eight people either side of her, so she couldn't get out. <laughs> and when the service starts, she thought, this is not about Michael Jackson. <laughs> but she couldn't get out, so she stayed. And there was an usher who had led her to a seat, and the usher felt God put her on his heart. This woman has not been here before, I don't think. And so he kept his eye on her, and on the way out, he said, uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, did you enjoy it? She said, well, I, I, I was here by mistake, really. I thought it was about Michael Jackson. But Michael Jackson? Yeah, well, I went to see the film, This Is It. And then I drove by and I said, is this, is this it? And so I, I thought, is this it? It's about This Is It. And so I came in. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I, I, I'm glad you came. She said, so am I. Why is that? So I've been asking questions for a long time. And I heard some answers to them this morning. 
he said, well, come and sit down here. And he took her to his wife, he and his wife, and make sure you've got ushers who's sensitive like this. Pray if you're an usher that you'll have your eyes open. And uh, they led her to Christ. He told me the story the next week, and I thought, well, you know, I hear these stories, let's see if it sticks or whatever's going on. And he came to me and said, she's here again this week. And about four or five weeks later, I was at the front, and a young lady came up to the front, and she said to me, we haven't met, but I think you know about me. I said, oh, who are you? She said, I'm the this is it girl. <laughs> and I said, oh, right, yes, I've heard about you. She said, my heart could not have been more prepared than when I walked into that service to hear what I heard that day. Well, we didn't have a strategy for reaching Michael Jackson fans. God did. I'll give you one more story because this is under our noses. I'm talking now, not out there in India and China. I'm talking about under our noses and what's true. My experience can be true and is true, I'm sure, in, in, in much of your experience as well. But we had a, two brothers who were converted in people's church, lovely young men, really passionate for Christ. Their parents were not Christians at all. They didn't... Uh, have any interest, they were antagonistic towards their sons coming to Christ. Both sons got married and were in the church. And uh, I knew one of these boys well, I knew his brother a little bit, and they'd said to me, you know, pray for our parents, pray for our parents. One day I was doing a series of messages which I called Beyond the Sunset, which is about what happens when you die. <laughs> And I did it, four sessions, I had four brothers, brother A, brother B, brother C, brother D. And I said, we're gonna follow all these four brothers on their journey. Brother A was a Christian, and the rapture took place, so he followed what was his journey. Brother B was a Christian, and he died. So we followed his journey down to the ground. Where, where did he go? What happens to him? What's the sequence? And then we did brother C, who was not a Christian, and the rapture took place, and what happens to him? And Brother D was not a Christian, he dies, what happens to him? The day I preached on Brother D, <laughs> the non-Christian who dies, and what happens to him, was at the end of that service, one of these two brothers came to me and said, you wouldn't believe this, my parents were here today, I couldn't believe it myself. I looked up and saw them, but he said it was the worst possible sermon for them to listen to. They think we're all about hellfire and brimstone. I've never heard you talk about hell till today. <laughs> They'll go home and say, that's exactly what we told you they're about. And he said, I, I'm, I'm glad they came, but I'm so disappointed it was today. I said, try to commiserate well, I'm sorry about that, but you know, yeah, that's right. That's, well, you know, who knows. They went home that day, those parents, and they sat down and they said to each other, if what we heard today is true, we're in big trouble. I wonder if it's true. Then a few weeks they came to Christ. We baptized them. They got so involved in the church. They wanted to be involved in the youth ministry. Um, 
and we tried to find a place for them. They want to get involved in the college and careers. About five nights a week, they were at the church because this now became their whole life. <laughs> but you know, when I prepared that message, and what happens to a guy who dies, not a believer, follow his trail. I thought, well, this will help to explain to Christians we can understand this. I didn't think there's going to be a couple there for the first time, and this is going to bring them to Christ. But it did, because we don't know what's going on in people's hearts, you see. You know, I mentioned John 4 just now, and uh, Jesus said to those disciples when, when they came back, and he said, I, I, you know, you, you missed an opportunity. Open your eyes and look. He said to them, I send you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you reap the benefit of the labor. You, you know, God is sending us out to reap. We have no idea what's happening in people's hearts and lives. Do you know where my son-in-law, where the first seed was sown in his heart? It's when he and some school friends in Iran were at a party, and at the end of that party, they called a taxi to take them home, four of them. As they drove home in the taxi, they were talking about the girls at the party and they were talking in a dirty way. And they stopped at the first house and the taxi driver stopped his taxi, turned around and said, don't you boys ever think about God? That's all he said, according to my son-in-law. He said he went home that night. It's a Muslim taxi driver. <laughs> and he couldn't sleep. Don't you boys ever think about God? And that rang in his mind and sank into his subconscious and was a seed that began to flourish and was part of the story that brought him to Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples, I send you to reap a harvest you did not work for. Others have done the hard work. We have no idea who had done the hard work in Samaria. Something got on in this lady's life in Samaria. Somebody had been involved somewhere. And so, as we... Uh, Move around our ordinary daily business and lives. Open your eyes and look is the message of Jesus. It's God through us. It's Christ through us. We're not doing it for him. It's he doing it through us. But open your eyes and look. The fields are ripe, said Jesus, under your nose. And who knows whether in your street, who knows whether in your place of work, who knows whether in your extended family there are people right now you would never even think would come to Christ in whose heart something is going on. I'm going to stop there. That was exactly halfway through what I was going to say all evening. So we'll say the other half tomorrow morning. Um, yes. Amen. Thank you. John, you come up.